This is Colonia Cast, episode 19. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, you, thanks to the Turtle Room for sponsoring this episode and show. You can find us at theturtleroom.org slash coloniacast, where you can learn more about our program, as well as access the Colonia Cast Student Research Fund, where we'll be raising money to support student-led turtle conservation and research-oriented projects, as well as other uh, programs dealing with, with, cons with, with turtle and tortoise biology. Today we are joined by uh, Scott Thompson, uh, who is currently a, in the Museum of Zoology at the University of Sao Paulo. Uh, he's also working at the Centro de Estudios de Colonias de Amazon in Manaus, Brazil. Uh, he got his master's in zoology and mathematics at the University of Canberra, studying with Arthur Georges. Uh, he's done a variety of different, he's published over 60 peer-reviewed uh, publications ranging in, in focusing on systematics and taxonomy and uh, kind of evolution of snake neck turtles and Australian sort of kelids. Uh, we're going to be talking to him today about a lot of these things. Um, really happy to have you on today, uh, Scott. It's got a question we ask every time, but what first got you interested in turtles? Okay. Um, my, my passion for turtles actually started down. Um, my mother's um, very insistent upon us reading a lot of books. And um, when I was extremely young, only about six, she bought me a book called The Enchanted Isles, which was about the Galapagos. And yeah, it's a children's book, but it showed that there were different on each island. And um, it basically, although not in those words, it introduced me to the idea of island biogeography. Bio and um, so later in life, I realized that's what it was actually showing. And it stemmed all the way through from there. I just slowly, by 10 years old, I had um, snake neck turtles in captivity. Um, I had a group of five of them. They were my first turtles uh, about in 1975. And um, I kept turtles up until the time um, well, I joined the army for a few years, but after I got out of that, I got back into working in zoology again. I started with fish again after that, but then started working with Galapagos tortoises um, at um, Western Plains Zoo in a soul as a zookeeper. And uh, they had um, a group of 10 tortoises. And I developed methods of um, identifying Galapagos because tortoises to subspecies morphometrics. This was before DNA was available. And um, I was relatively successful at being able to do it. Um, many of my IDs ended up being correct. Um, and DNA was used to confirm it. But um, it's not an ideal method for doing it. I, I know. And um, so I was always interested in how things split up and evolved. And, um, I got the opportunity to do that in Australia, uh, where I lived at the time, and um, started working on um, long necks. But also, I was given the opportunity to take a really good look at the um, short necks because they were a mess. Uh, they were, uh, 20 years ago, their taxonomy was disastrous. And um, I did my master's on um, Elsaia. And um, at the same time, I was also doing some descriptions of long necks and looking at fossil history as well, because I feel the fossil history is so important in turtles because there's 
four times more fossils, taxa of turtles than there are living species. There's over 1,200 fossil taxa described. And so it's um, important to always include the fossils in a group that's got such a fossil history. Right, that's, that's yeah, an interesting point. That's an interesting point, the fossils in terms of using that in, in phylogenetics and trying to answer questions about relationships, it's something that's not always there uh, and seems like it, it would be, it would, it would benefit a lot of analyses if it was. I, going, talking about the Alsaya, uh, maybe we could backtrack to that. That seems like we could start off with that. That was sort of an interesting study there, I think beginning with some of the, the Alzheimer work that Dr. Georges did uh, to kind of discover all these different haplotypes or groupings. And then you, you came through and over 20 years or so described a bunch of the, the new species there. Maybe you could shed some light on the process behind that. Yeah, it, it technically started back in 1974 with um, Andrew Burbage, who did serology. Um, which was what was available back then. And he found some divisions within Elsaia and um, also uh, the long that needed further testing. And Arthur Georges with uh, Mark Adams, um, he um, did the Alzheimer work, as you, as you said, and um, he went on to um, show that there were at least five taxa within species dentata and that um, what became Maya Kelly's was not really an Elsaia. You've got to remember back then we had three species of Elsaia and um, that were recognized. Elsaia latisternum, Elsaia dentata and Elsaia minia. That was it. And um, he brought me on as a master's student to actually um, do the morphology, the morphometrics and um, the um, descriptions of the various species. Um, and we went from there. I ended up describing um, with Arthur, at least the three of them, four species of Elsaia. And um, I also split the genus um, Elsaia. And um, so, and as I said, we had three species. By the time I finished, we had um, 11 species in one genus and four species in another. Uh, John Cann described um, Irwin and I, so I didn't describe all of them, but um, I did describe four of them. Yeah, and which four was, was, were those again? Um, I described um, Elsaia albagula with um, Arthur Georges and Colin Limpus. I also described um, Elsaia Rodonai, um, with that, and Yulani, um, um, who's from Papua New Guinea. Um, and I described um, Elsaia flaviventralis. And uh, I also described species called Elsaia nadabajagu. And um, the other thing we did was um, deal with some species of had already technically been described, but had been sunk. So I resurrected um, Brander Horsky, I re resurrected Schultzai, I also resurrected Uberima, um, corrected the usage of Telemastis, um, 
And um, that's why we have the three subgenera within Elsea that possibly should be genera, honestly. Um, so Elsea is up for more splitting, if you want, because um, Pelicastes and um, the true Elsea are actually nothing alike. They're completely different animals. And um, this would go for Hanwera Kelly's as well, which is the um, New Guinea stream turtles. Right. That, that's pretty interesting. That, and so you kind yeah. of came through after the allosime work was done and then characterized these, these haplotypes, but using morphology. Maybe you could shed some light on what morphologically, what are the what are the things we're looking for that, that kind of denote differences between these these turtles? All right. Um, one of the problems in morphology that a lot of people do is they only look at live animals or something like that, and they only look externally. And that's a difficulty. Um, you need to actually get skeletons and look at how they differ skeletally because that tells you a lot about their function or morphology. Um, and function is important. The pelicomastids, um, they differ in uh, the form of the alveolar ridges within the mouth. They are true fig eaters. Uh, they don't, don't eat anything else really. And so their alveolar ridges are designed to shred fruit. Um, this is a whole different formation of the palate within the turtle. And uh, they also differ in um, the form of the, what I ended up with at bridge strut. A lot of people call them buttresses. I don't do that. Among my degrees, I have a degree in computer science. Um, I'm a software engineer. And that meant I did engineering. Engineer, I look at structure from an engineering perspective. And what people are calling a buttress is not actually a buttress. It's, from an engineering perspective, it's a strut. And because buttress only um, prevents movement in one direction, one plane direction, whereas a strut can prevent movement in three directions because of its angle. And so the what people call the buttresses in Turtles are actually struts um, from an engineering perspective. So I, re I renamed all of that I'll show you what a bridge strut looks like. You like. This is part of the plastron. Of, so if you look in there, this is the bridge strut, all right, this part here. There's the bottom, okay, that's the front of the turtle. That's the side. And as you go in, that's the inside. And um, it basically... That is the bridge strut. And so that that that's a diagnostic feature. You and look at the angle of that is what connects the plastron. 
and it is a um, in river turtles it's very big um, because it's used to stop crushing of the um, base. So basically it's to stop crocodile attacks. So wherever you've got a big living with um, fresh water or um, saltwater crop, something like that, or any sort of animal that can crush a turtle, you'll end up with turtles with big struts. And it's not just in Kilo, it's, it's found in Badger and um, summer mitids and um, things as well. But whenever you've got a large river turtle, um, you'll end up with these big struts that create extra strengths within the shell to prevent crushing. So you use kind of the bridge struts, the angle of the bridge struts with in, in the shape, right? Is there anything else like anatomically that you're using to classify the Alsaya or is that? Yeah, there is. There's quite a lot. I mean, I, I actually have 63 characters, um, morphological characters for Alsaya um, and Maya Kelly's and Imagura, so for the short necks. And um, there's things like... Um, the first vertebral scoot in Elsaia is very consistently wider than the um, second, and um, whereas in Emidura and Reodites, they're the same. Same with um, Maya Kelly's, they're the same. And um, we also have characters like even the posterior bridge strut, where it actually comes into the um, carapace is different. It, it is either at the fifth and sixth, literally between the fifth and sixth plural, or it can be on the fifth plural, or it can be on the sixth plural, depending on the genus. And um, then there's characters like the um, position of the Voma, which is one of the bones on the base of the skull. Uh, hang on one sec, I'll get one. One of the palatal bones, right, the palatal yes. complex. Alright, this, this is a phrenops, but if you look Oh, there it is. Oh. Yep. That bone between the two holes, the one that's below it, um, that's the Voma. And either side of the Voma are the Palatines. And, um, and um, then further down are the pterygoids. So, right, sorry, I've got a pen here now. That's the Voma. And um, how that bone is connected to the palatines or the um, pterygoids is different between species. And that's to do with how they eat, actually, and what, how much strengthening they need inside the jaw for eating. And if, so it depends on what they're eating, etc. Um, also use um, presence, absence of a nuchal scoot, believe it or not, works for distinguishing Hanwera Kelly's from all the others. Um, because all Hanwera Kelly's have nuchal scoots, um, true Elsaia and Pelicomastes do not. Um, the very front of the carapace in Pelicomastes is not quite, but almost indented a bit like um, Podocnomids are, whereas in Elsaia's they're very rounded. And um, Colour in um, Flavi ventralis has a yellow belly. It's the only Elsaia with a yellow belly. All the rest of them have black, or at least mottling to black 
on the belly. Um, yeah, so there's there's dozens and dozens of characters. Right, there's a lot. That that's probably a good thing when you're trying to create a robust morphology or I guess anatomically based phylogeny or, or, or classifications. If you can distinguish a lot of things. Yes, you want a lot of characters. I mean, I may end up only using three or four characters when I write the key for how to distinguish them between species for people to with live animals. But for the actual phylogenetic analysis, I, I want at least 50 to 100 characters. Um, I use actually around 230 characters now. Wow, that it that's a cool thing. And what kind of... That's pretty interesting. Uh, and the question here a lot of times, right, is distinguishing between species in the lopatry. For a lot of listeners, that biological species concept of if they can kind of produce fertile offspring or not with each other is going to be the idea of what we have of species. But there's a lot of different species concepts, and you, you, it's not always that straightforward if you can tell if something can, can produce viable offspring. Right, so you're using these characters under what sort of context? Well, what you, we're using the characters in terms that they show um, diverging evolutionary trajectories. So obviously the characters have functions and um, the turtles have developed different um, ecological niches that they're um, using so they have to have different morphologies so they diverge and that's how you end up with different species hybridization is is an issue um back in 1963 when the biological species concept was um proposed by um Mayer and simpson and co um the ability to track hybridization wasn't possible really i mean Nowadays, we can use molecular data to um, identify hybridization or what we would generally call introgression, where genes are being flipped between species. And um, what it's shown is that hybridization is virtually normal. And let's be honest, even our own species is a hybrid. There are three taxa inside our species and different humans from different parts of the world have between two and 6% of different, of other species inside of us. So, you know, hybridization is normal. And um, with turtles, they're very good at it. I mean, every Caledina can breed with any Caledina. Um, I've got photographs of a Caledina Parkeri cross Emigura subgabosa. And so that's cross genus, um, short neck over long neck, um, bred with each other, no problem. And what this does for species is it actually allows them to import genes into their genome that they can possibly use to adapt to changing conditions. And so um, the species is then using those in the adaptation and so you end up with a history of introgression and so hybridization is not rare and it's basically pretty normal and um we need to start using that or at least accepting that within our species concepts that hybridization occurs probably across most taxa 
Right. The idea, the the evolutionarily significant unit kind of encapsulates that idea, right? That that things are a species should be something on an evolutionary trajectory, independent of whether it can interbreed with other things. That 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 definition is kind of shaky as well, right? Well, there's around about twenty two, twenty-three different definitions of the species floating around. And um, they're all pretty shaky. Um, may, not so much because you can find a group of taxa where a good species concept will work for that group of taxa. But if you want to have a species concept that will work for everything from a fungus to a vertebrate, you're going to be in a lot of difficulty because you've got different reproductive modes there. You've got asexual and and um, reproduction, all sorts of things. Plants can reproduce on often in three or four different ways, um, by budding, by fruit, you know, within the same species. Um, so there's all sorts of um, issues going on that make defining a species exactly very difficult. Um, so what you really want to look at is, to me, you want to look at whether or not as you said, is it on an evolutionary trajectory that has diverged enough from other trajectories that they are different enough to define them um, at both a morphological and a molecular level? Right, that, that makes sense. Um, I think, too, something interesting for all of us as kind of younger, uh, kind of getting into this field, it's cool to read papers that describe new species because there typically is a lot that you won't find other in terms of describing it in, in a holistic manner, but also the details of the ecology uh, for, for a new animal, a new taxa. What is it like? Like, what is the process and what kind of analytical methods are you using to validate some of these things, right? Because you can, you can go into a population and, and measure different characters, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to hold over a large range. Or how do we statistically kind of buffer the, the assumptions of, of speciation? All right. So the, the process of describing a species is complicated. And... Um, what you basically need is to look at the weight of evidence. And um, I mean, I, like you say, I can look at some population and say, that's a new species. Okay, prove it. And um, that's what you've got to do. You've got to get this weight of evidence that effectively proves your hypothesis. So you've got a hypothesis with a null hypothesis. This is a new species. No, it's not. And um, you need to get this balance of evidence to get you to the point of saying it is. And this is a problem with some of the species descriptions that come out. They don't produce any real evidence. Um, they just say it's a species, um, but the evidence is not there. So what you want is multiple lines of evidence, for one, that corroborate with each other. And so I will not describe a species based on a singular line of evidence. So if I've only got morphology, that's not enough. If I've only got molecular, not enough. If I've only got morphometrics, no way. I use all three. Um, obviously, with fossils, I can't. Um, they're rocks, let's face it. They don't have DNA. And um, But I still use morphometrics and morphology and um, 
also a few other features in fossils which I can't use in living taxa, but um, such as taphonomy and um, and age. Um, age does come into it with fossils, but um, with the living taxa, I will say, for example, I'll say Albergula. We had some evidence that it was a new species before I started. Um, Arthur's allozyme work, for example. Um, it had also been suggested to be a new species by John Tan at one point. Um, before him, um, even back to the 60s, people had, um, 1960s, people had said this might be different. But um, the allozymes by themselves were not enough, even though it was a significant difference in allozymes from dentata. Um, I then had to produce the morphological evidence that they were different, all those characters that we were discussing before, and then a whole bunch of measurements. And um, when I'm doing measurements, um, I'm not just measuring shell lengths and then shell widths and um, putting one over the other and saying this is different by a, um, a simple um, statistical method. I'm, I'm using um, principal components analysis followed up by a discriminant function analysis. And what that does, principal components analysis are basically throw all your data in and it'll spray it out all over the, the graph and hopefully it clumps into groups and you can see that there's say three different groups that are very, very different and that might be Dentata, um, Albergula and Irwinite for example. I then take those groups and I classify them and I say one is species A, one is species B and one is species um, B, whatever. And um, put them back into a new analysis called a discriminant function analysis, which uses classification and ordination. And that reanalyzes it with constrained classes to show the difference between those classes. So now I've got a morphometric analysis that supports the hypothesis. I have a morphological analysis that supports the hypothesis. And I have allozymes, which is as good as molecular in a lot of ways um, at the time. And um, they all supported each other. And so I have three independent lines of evidence that support the hypothesis. Then I can say it's this. And that's the process, basically. It's a pretty interesting confluence of a lot of different, like mathematics and, and biology. Uh, I mean, it's pretty interesting how, how you can take all of these different characters and then use these analyses to look at something that exists in a high dimensional space and then kind of boil it down to, to something that you can even cross validate, right? You can take taxa measurements and then it will sort them into different categories and it gives you a, a percentage score for how similar they, they match those, those uh, canonical space, right? Yeah, this is why the discriminant function analysis is so important as well, because one of the features of a discriminant function analysis is that it actually attempts to destroy itself. Um, it does what's called stepwise um, analysis. So every step, it is removing one data point and seeing if the analysis still holds. And it does another step, sees if the analysis still holds, removes another variable, sees if the analysis still holds. And you see how far it can go before it fails, as in you lose your 95% confidence limit. It will then show you that. And the further it can get without being self-destroying, um, the more 
the higher the p-value is of the um, analysis, the probability. And um, the next thing it does is a resubstitution analysis. It reanalyzes the entire thing again with one specimen missing out of the data. It then tries to classify that specimen just using the mass without the class added and sees if it gets it right. And you have what are called priors, which is your minimum amount of um, specimens that must be um, classified correctly for you to accept the analysis. And, as, and if it keeps getting all of them correct, when it's trying to predict what species it is, um, then that adds to the value as well. And this why I use that type of analysis. It's a very, very powerful analysis. And just doing an ANOVA or something like that, or a simple chi-square or anything, is just not enough. It's very basic statistics for this type of stuff. Right. It's it's not as dynamic as that system. And it, it seems like, yeah, I re recall the, the description of the Pearl River map turtle. They used that, but it was the first time I'd actually seen it used in in North American turtle classifications. So it seems like a good thing to do beyond just your, yeah, your simple kind of, I guess, multivariate comparisons. Yeah, it is. You, you need to take your statistics as far as you can go. You need to meet all of your um, assumptions because every statistical test has a series of assumptions that you have to meet to use the test. So you have to meet those assumptions. And um, yeah, so you've got to do the stats right. Um, same with the phylogenetic analysis, they also have statistics involved in the tree, which is your consistency index, your retention index, which are um, statistical tests of the um, analysis. So right. You, it, you also have p-values on that. That's interesting. It, I, that might be a good time to sort of transition to uh, just telid taxonomy in general and even kind of biogeography. I think one of the things that stands out about this group of turtles is the fact that you've got them in Australia and South America and then nothing in sort of the northern hemispheres. It's a pretty interesting biogeography. Um, maybe you could sort of give us a little bit background on why this is like what are the sort of the, the the events that have led to this and then on their their phylogeny if there's any if there's any one phylogeny that's currently accepted how has this happened through the genera yeah um kilids are a um extremely interesting group because they're entirely gondwanan so they're only found in the um, continents of Gondwana and in particular South America and Australia, as you said. They're also almost definitely found in Antarctica, were fossils. Um, and what happened is that up until 103 million years ago, Australia, Antarctica and South America were connected. And... Um, the keelids were likely um, distributed right throughout that whole area, but the southern part of South America, southern part of Australia, and Antarctica. Um, once those three continents split up and Antarctica froze, obviously they went extinct in um, South America, in Antarctica. And they spread a little bit further north in um, South America and Australia. They're actually a cold climate turtle, um, very interestingly. 
Chelids are still active in water that is only 12 degrees Celsius. Um, I don't remember what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's very cold. Um, I've been in water that cold, um, catching turtles, and you go very blue, I can assure you. It's not fun. They're completely active in that water and still hunting for food. They're actually not very good in tropics, and um, there are not a lot of tropical um, expansions of the keelids until very recently. And um, what we have is um, a group that basically, based on the fossils, evolved originally in Argentina. And um, they seem to have evolved around 145, 150 million years ago in Argentina and then spread south down through Antarctica and across to Australia. Um, they probably evolved, there's a number of phylogenetic analyses that actually support the idea that they are the sister group of a, a Pelomidusoides group called the Araripemidae. And they are an extinct um, group of long-necked turtles um, from the Pelomidusoides. And if that's correct, what chelids are is actually just another Pelomidusoides and they're just a very different one. And personally, I think that is uh, actually highly likely. And because um, the Arera Pemidae are also from Brazil and um, for, including further south all, all the way to um, Argentina. So they are actually in the right place. They're at the right time. And morphologically, they have a lot of similarities. So yeah, to me, the chelids evolved um, in the south and they stayed there. They never got across. You've got to remember all of these southern Gondwanan continents were not connected in any way to um, the northern continent until very recently um, when South America collided with North America, for example, when um, Australia got close enough to Indonesia to start having some crossover there. But um, historically they were only found in the far south. Do you think uh, that the fact that they aren't as, uh, they don't prefer the, the tropical conditions as much, like limited their ability to move northwards on the Great American Interchange? Like, you know, or like some species came south, like that's why there's Calydra in, in the northern parts of South America, but there are no Kelids or anything that moved up north into North America. I would say partly that and also probably also a bit of competition they probably didn't compete well with the amidids coming down um various trichemi species that moved down through that into um, northern south america probably didn't help them um as well and um but yeah they never got any further north than probably the furthest north they are is bermuda um that's it um but um, honestly i think they're possibly human introduced anyway. There are matter matters in um, parts of the Caribbean. Um, I think they may be human introduced. Where did you say specifically? What, which? Uh... Um, there's a couple of islands in the Caribbean where you can find matter matter. Um, oh yeah. But, um, Barbados, I, think. Yeah. I think they're human introduced. I don't think yeah, they're yeah. naturally. 
They've been there a long time. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that's a recent introduction, but they probably it's are. like prehistoric humans. Uh, well, certainly um, several hundred thousand years, yeah, mm -hmm. or circa thousand years or something like that. Uh, yeah. I was I was I was reading over the hall, the paper by Holly that used the like total evidence matrix for constructing the, the dated phylogeny for all the chelids. It seemed like they had the Arerapemidae as basal to the other Pelomedusoides, and then that was like a whole separate, so that would be against the hypothesis. So you're saying that chelids could actually be a radiation of the Arerapemidae, which is kind of a, it's a basal group to other, the Pelomedusidae essentially? Is that? Yeah, it's a very ancient group, and it is certainly basal to a number of taxa. So it, it's a stem. Um, it's right, a stem, stem, yeah. But um, I'm not 100% in agreement with Holly's um, phylogeny. Um, I don't think he um, got all the right. It, he did try very well. He did a good job with a lot of it, um, and it was very interesting. But there are other... Um, phylogenies that have been produced that even have um, Herrerapamidae as sister taxa, but I've got to, I need to go right into their data to see how they got that. Because one of the problems in um, chelid phylogeny is people misinterpret long neck. They use long neck as a character. And um, that's a misinterpretation of how to use that character. And if you're just using long neck, it's gonna create, um, um, conjunction where there's homoplasy and um, homoplasy being, you know, the, the same character evolves in two different organisms independently. That's homoplasy. So um, the interesting thing is I think the thing that's homoplasic in chelids is short neck, not long neck. Hmm. I think the short neck has evolved multiple times, not the long neck. So the long neck would be ancestral. That would be what the ancestral Kellett had. And then you had the short neck radiation in, in both South and Australasia, right? South American yeah, Australasia. That's what I think. And I think one of the big hassles in um, Kellett phylogeny is that is the root of the tree. They're rooting it on Podoctomus, which is a short neck. And then they're using long neck as a character, which makes all the long necks come together in a morphological tree. But if you root the tree on a rare apemis, you'll get the opposite. Because that's how the algorithm works that you use. Right. So you've got to be extremely careful what you root the tree on to get the phylogenetics to work. And it takes a lot of understanding of the, of the anatomy. Right, that, that makes sense. It the, yeah, like you said, the morphology, the the long neck state, if it's homoplasies or not, depend. Like the genetic analyses seem to support the idea that it that it would that it would be right, whereas morphology yeah. doesn't because it, it links them all together. That that's pretty interesting. I what what do you think of the functional significance of? Well, do you so you you think it's homoplasies or or not? Well, it's homoplasic, but of course it depends on where you look at the tree. At some point, it was also um, it was also a derived state because Arerapemis has a long neck, but no other um, Pelomedusoides does. So obviously, it evolved a long neck for a reason. Right. And in 
in, if you go that far back in the tree, it is a derived state. But from then on, it's an ancestral state for the species that evolve after that. What do you think that the functional significance of the, the or the short neck evolving in two different continents at two separate times would be? Is that food? Food sources. Um, basically, you're looking at um, the short neck has a lot of advantages if you're a sedentary feeder. Um, so basically, if you're um, herbivore, if you're a um, um, eating mussels or snails or anything like that, you don't need a long neck. And um, the long neck has a disadvantage for predation, especially, for example, eagles catch long neck turtles by just grabbing them by the neck because their necks hang out. There's not as much protection at the front of the shell. So there is a disadvantage to the long neck and um, the um, long necks seem to have um, been a successful concept amongst the evolution of these turtles, but it has its limits. And so when opportunity arises, the neck goes back to short neck. But some of the, what you would call a short, actually have extraordinarily long necks. Um, I mean, it's not short neck, long neck. It's really not that simple. And personally, I don't consider the matter matter, for example, a long neck. I consider it a short neck. Um, and um, there are reasons for that, which are very complicated. But um, I'll show you one here. Um, this is Frenox, Jeffrey Okay. There we go. So, oh, yeah, it's it. a lot. Okay, it's alive. <laughs> yes. Can you see its neck? Yes. That is yeah. not just a short neck. It has a relatively long neck. Yeah, right. That, um, that seems like... No Elsaia, no Maya Kelly's has a neck that long. Um, not even... Uh-oh, here comes this another one. That's oh, wow. Rhinomates. Wow, yeah, I don't, I've never seen one of them. So this guy has a short neck. That's a short neck. But Phrynops' neck is twice the length of that. So is Phrynops a short neck or a long neck? Well, it's still class. I, I think Hydromedusa are the only ones that are considered long necks, right, in South America. But that doesn't seem right. Well, Kellis has a relatively long neck, but it's not as long as Hydromedusa or um, the Australian Kellidinus. And um, the thing with Kellis is there's a bit of an optical illusion going on when you look at Kellis. Kellis is an extremely big turtle, but it has a very small shell. Yes, a 60 centimeter Kellis has a big shell, but a 60 centimeter Kellis would be the equivalent of an 80 centimeter Phrynops because they have less overhang of the shell compared to the length of the vertebrae. Their shell has shrunk. Their um, bridge length is actually shorter and um, the bridge only goes from the um, junction of the um, 
around about the third marginal down to about the, the sixth margin, whereas in most other keelers goes to the eighth. And um, so the whole bridge has shrunk in, a, in Kellis. All the overhang of the carapace at the front and the back has reduced. Its tail and legs hang out like you wouldn't believe um, compared to our keelers. Its plastron is so short that the pelvis is connected to the very butt end of the, of the plastron. And that's um, one of the other factors with that group. Um, so Kellis, I always describe it to people as having a short shell, not a long neck. That, I think that that's a good point, right? It's more of a gradation in some ways. The, there's not, a, when you really think about it, Phrynops, the, the Kelanines, they're going to, it's, it's nothing in North America has a, a neck that long. It's not really a short neck. It's kind of just this gradation. Yeah, and also with Kellis, because the shell's so short, more of the neck is exposed. The, the last joint of the cervicals, which is your actual neck bones, is, for, is closer to the front of the shell in a chelus than it is in any other kilo. So more of the neck is exposed, making it look longer. So it's an optical illusion. Interesting. So when you actually take the measurement and then control for size, it's very it's similar. Yeah, what you need to do is instead of measuring shell length, you measure the length of the thoracic vertebrae and compare mm -hmm. that. That's your baseline. The thoracic vertebrae becomes your baseline. You get shell length as a variable. And when you do that, you find out that the matter matter actually has a very short shell relative to vertebrae length. That's pretty interesting. It, the, so a lot of people were wondering, too, about what causes the long neck condition. What are sort of anatomically, is it just elongation of the of the the cervical vertebrae, or are there other things that are happening there that, that lead to that? There's quite a lot. Um, obviously, the cervical vertebrae are elongated. And um, leave Kellis out of this for a minute because they actually break all the rules on this. When you actually okay. break it down into individual bones, they, they, are, not, they are not like this. But um, in Caledina and Hydromedusa, um, you've got complete fusion of the atlas axis structure and elongation of it. So it actually creates like an extra vertebrae in the neck. Rather than it just being for connecting the head to the neck, it also is elongated and fused. So um, that creates this extra vertebrae. And then all the other vertebrae are elongated except the eighth cervical, which connects directly to the, um, to the thoracic vertebrae inside the shell. Um, and that's where you get the length from. And in Caledina Expansa, for example, from Australia, um, the fourth um, cervical is twice the length of the eighth cervical. And um, that creates a huge amount of length in the neck. So a fully grown Caledina Expansa, although 40 centimetres in Paris length, is a one metre turtle from nose to tail. It's interesting yeah. that that's the case. Right? The, uh, the ribs are also kind of structurally interesting in certain species to make more room for the longissimus dorsi muscles. Is that 
is that a condition that, that's different among chelids, or is that something that's fixed? The ribs, which sorry? The ribs are kind of modified in a way that in, in certain species makes more room for the longissimus muscles, like differential oh, development. Yeah. All right. I'll, let me, one second, I'll get a specimen. Okay. Sounds good. I like this. We're getting the, we're getting the full on yeah, specimen. Getting, get... It seems to be like, yeah, all the Australian specialists get to show us stuff. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm trying to leave a lot of the stuff with Madam out of for Lucas, but I will show you this one because they've got the most bizarre inside. All right, that's the inside of a matter matter. Wow. Okay? Yeah, that does And these are the rib heads. And what is inside that, all the way down, is the longissimus coli muscle. And the longissimus coli muscle, we have them too, they make you have the ability to twitch your head sideways. Um, the longissimus coli muscles in keelids, and this is why keelids are the ones that can do long neck. Um, no other group can do long neck because of some things that keelids have done. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's the, the bane of podcasting. You never know who's going to show up. Scott's in a working um, lab, so. Yeah, it's in the lab. Sorry, it's noisy. It's <laughs> um, okay. The longissimus coli muscle is used for striking. So any of the long necks have larger longissimus coli muscles to shoot the head out. And how they do it is they actually pull on both muscles at the same time. And when you pull on um, both muscles at the same time, it straightens the neck. Uh, you got toys like a magic wand, you know, you pull the string and it straightens. Okay, it works on the same principle. Um, that's the engineer in me. You always look at how things work. And um, anyway, um, they also have um, elongation of the skull itself, um, with the exception of the matter matter. Whereas the matter matter, you know, that's the skull of the matter matter. It's much shorter. But with the Chelidinas and Hydromedusa, they have elongation of the skull, um, which also gives you more length. And of course, that huge gula uh, modification for um, opening up the throat as they pull the fish in. Um, and the complete combination of that gives them this ability to strike incredibly quickly um, at um, prey and, and engulf it effectively um, and swallow it whole. They don't chew, they just swallow it. Their mouths actually don't completely meet. So it's a bit like a baleen whale where You've got a mouth full of fish and water. They then close the mouth, close the gullet, all the water comes out, but the fish is held in. And um, then they swallow. They don't swallow the water as well. Um, it's, a, it's called strike and gape feeding. It's not unique to um, turtles. Um, pelicans eat the same way. So do garters um, among birds. So it's, a, it's used in a number of groups of animals. And the thing they all have in common is Long necks, flat heads, and elongation of the head, and huge throats. That's pretty what interesting. What you're saying is, uh, uh, like, oh, were you saying something, Michael? No, go ahead. Go ahead. 
Oh yeah, you're saying is the uh, they've perfected that form of feeding essentially, and that I've I've heard it referred to as the gape and suck method. To where uh, I mean, even in some of the larger soft shells have it. There's a massive the structures in the throat are, are much larger, and uh, the jaws are not. There's no crushing power or anything. It's all centered around that gape and suck, and then they vacuum out the rest of the water, or like expel it. You can get bitten by a fully grown Caledonia expanser, and it'll hurt a bit, but it'll hardly break the skin um, because they just don't have any closing power in the jaw. It's not meant to. They just want it to be closed enough that the fish can't escape, but the water can. And um, it's extraordinarily fast, but it is also different within the Caledina. You've got three groups within the Caledina, for example. You've got the um, true Caledinas, like Caledina longicollis, and then you've got the odd one out in Western Australia, um, Caledina oblonga, uh, which is in Macrocaledina. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of them, like Expansa, which is in um, Caledira, um, the third subgenus. And all three of those subgenera feed in a different way. And I had eight of the species of them, and I tested them all in aquariums with goldfish um, to see who could hunt the best. And um, definitely Caledina barangangi, I had it on any others. That's interesting. And that was in the description so of what? that, the head characters. Were, oh, go ahead. I, the lag here. Yeah, Jack, I was going to say an earlier point. What is it about Kelids that allows them to take? They take advantage of this. This compared to like the the long neck morphology itself. Like, what, what is the basis for that in, in general? Like the all right. In cryptogears, your neck is the your hidden neck turtles. The neck is pulled back in the vertical plane. Because of that, there is a limit to how long the neck can be. Um, otherwise, it can't pull it back between the carapace and the plastron. The reason trionychids are the exception is because their plastron is not actually connected to their carapace. So when they strike and then pull the head back, their plastron pulls away from the from the carapace. There's a kinesis um, there. There's kinesis, but there's no way that say a um, even um, your um, chicken turtles in the U.S., which have a relatively long neck for a for an amide, for an amided, um, they can't do what keelids do. Um, they're not. It's nowhere in the same um, plane as them, but. Um, it's literally just there's no space between the plastron and the carapace to vertically pull a neck back in that direction. That's that's a pretty interesting thing. It's just the the dynamics and biomechanics behind it. It's uh, certainly an interesting feature. Um, the, in the description of the Arnhem land long neck, you use the 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 head morphology to describe the species. I seem to recall. And that actually had a lot of predictive power over where they would get assigned in your the canonical space, right? But uh, maybe I guess just switching to something you mentioned, the uh, the southwestern long neck, that's been nomenclaturally one of the most yeah. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> one of the most interesting things. I think I've seen maybe six different names applied to that, uh, but and and even subgenera, right? So many different kind of. 
yeah. Maybe you could give us the most recent rundown on that. <laughs> Maybe you could yeah. tell us a bit more about this. All right. Um, and some of that was my fault. What, what happened with that? Um, John Cann, back in um, 1977, had mentioned that he was a bit um, worried that maybe the name was wrong. And I, I followed that up around 2000. And um, I examined the holotype and stuff, and I, I changed it um, so that Ronga went up to the north. And the thing I did at the time, which I wish people had followed, when you make a dramatic change like that and you need to go to the ICZN, you can invoke that um, nomenclature must stay the same until the ICZN makes a decision. Unfortunately, people didn't listen to that. I asked them to do that. I actually invoked it. It's called Article 80, 82 of the code. And so that would have left it longer down in the southwest until the ICZN made a decision. Unfortunately, people went on their own track and did whatever they wanted. And um, so Oblonga started getting used up north and Rugosa got sunk and Collieye got um, resurrected for southwestern Australia. Um, then we did the molecular analysis um, in um, 2017. I was on that paper as well. And um, we tested the um, ancient DNA of 19 holotypes including the Oblonga holotype, and found it was actually from Perth. And um, so we had to redo it all again, and that brought Oblonga back in the southwest. That's fine for the species, but we had a, another issue, and that was the subgenus. Um, some people refer to it as a genus, Macrocalodina. When Wells and Wellington described Macrocalodina, they set Oblonga as the type species of Macrocalodina. And that, the name always goes with the type. Wherever the type is, that's where your name goes. And you can't change that. And um, so while Oblonga was thought to be what you're now calling Rugosa, Macrocalodina applied to all those northern longnecks. But as soon as a blonga went back to Perth, Macrocalodina had to go with it. And um, so that created a major issue in the Mancocher. Um, so the correct name in, for the southwestern one is Calodina Macrocalodina oblonga. That is its name. It will not change again. Um, the correct name for the northern longneck is Calodina Caladera rugosa. And that will not change again. Uh, that's that's good to hear that it's it's stable now. But I mean, that's kind of a, I guess, part of the fun and maybe the frustration of of nomenclature and systematics is that kind of, you know, it, things have to follow a certain order to make it ruly. Yeah. But at the same rate, it it makes it challenging certain sometimes. Um, you pointed out in one of your papers a difference between taxonomy and nomenclature that I think was kind of an interesting thing that we maybe don't think about the nuances of, but actually has pretty big implications in terms of how it's regulated. Maybe you could talk yeah. about that a little bit. All right. Taxonomy is basically the study of the relationships of species and um, or populations. It doesn't really matter. 
but how different populations relate to other populations. And then we draw lines and decide things are um, species or genera or whatever. You can draw your lines wherever you like. Um, but the taxonomy is just the study of relationships. You don't have to put any names on anything. You can call them A, B, C, D, it doesn't matter. Um, and all you're looking at is how different populations are related to each other using science. And it is a science. It's a hard science. And um, by hard, I don't mean difficult. Um, hard science means it is a data-driven science, um, not a subjective one. Nomenclature is a, um, is a tool. It's not, a, it's not science. Nomenclature is a tool um, for a bookkeeping tool, effectively, for deciding which name to use for which taxa. And the only place that overlaps is at the type. So at the species level, um, that's the holotype. The only animal in a population that absolutely has the name of whatever you're calling that species is the holotype. Every other member of that population borrows the name from the holotype. They don't own it. Only the holotype owns the name. So that one singular specimen that is the holotype has the name. You decide that it belongs to that population, so you use the name for the whole population. And that's effectively what you're doing. So when you're doing taxonomy, if you're going to impact nomenclature, you have to study the type. You must include the type in your data set. It has to be there. Otherwise, you can't say anything about the nomenclature. Right, that makes sense. And when you, Ken, are you trying to say something? Um, I was about to, I was thinking mostly that um, another good part of this taxonomy or nomenclature debate is the usage of trinomials, right? Like traditionally, trinomials have been resorted to subspecies, but now. And recently there's been proposals to be using it as like species within a species. Have you, have you heard about that? Species within a species? Well, that is yes. a subspecies basically. Um, yeah, I guess there's, it's basically a species, it's a subspecies. If you... Well, it's nice. the thing is it depends on what people want to draw the line. In yeah. the end, you've got your tree and you're basically drawing a line through it and you're deciding everything below that line is a species. And um, so where you decide, it's subjective, okay? Where you decide you're gonna join the, draw those lines is where you're gonna name things. And so a clade might be a species with a whole bunch of populations that belong to one species, or it might be five species and the, and the nose that joins the clade is a genus. Um, and that's totally up to the person who did the, um, the phylogeny and usually if they're doing it well um, they will look at how much significant difference there is between them before they decide where to put those names. The thing with species within species idea is basically this is what where people are saying there are hidden species within a species and a, a species should be split up but it hasn't been done. What people should do is um, to avoid confusion, if you're not going to work on the nomenclature and taxonomy of a group, you should use the accepted taxonomy. 
So go to the TTWG checklist. That's your name. If it's not in there, don't use it. Um, you can go to Reptile Database. Um, go to Wiki Species, where I'm a, um, I'm actually an ombud for Wikimedia. And um, what you um, are doing is you're not creating confusion by doing that. You're just using the accepted names that are clearly being analysed as being valid and you're accepting them. If you're writing a taxonomic paper and you want to change the nomenclature, you can do whatever you like. But you've got to um, provide evidence for why you're changing the names. But if you just start using a name because you would prefer to have Population X have this name because maybe you can get more money for the um, turtles if they are actually a species. That creates problems, and you've got no justification for doing it. So unless a species has been analysed and accepted as a named taxon, it shouldn't have a name. Yeah, I mean, there's we move. We're moving towards like the general lineage concepts. At least that's like the trend for these evolutionary studies, but like you said, it's, it's not clear or objective in which species criteria we, we take to actually define species like, I don't know, like monophily or just reproductive isolation. And so there's always this element of subjectiveness that I think it, it could be, it could be useful to at least propose using trinomials to define species that are not reproductively, that are not totally reproductively diverged. That's, that's what I've seen. Most species are not reproductively diverged. Like I said earlier, yeah. Caledonia can cross with anything, um, including other genera. Um, so can many um, trichemies, so can many um, um, sea turtles. They're crossing um, genera. Um, the, um, I, I, I'm actually more surprised when turtles can't hybridize. Right. That yeah, that, yeah. It, yeah that's a good it, point. It's that question of the allopatry versus sympatry too, right? It, there's certain circumstances where it's easy to see if something can hybridize and produce fertile offspring, but in most cases, that's not going to be something that you can do. Like the Alsaya is a good example. You've got separate river drainages for each one, and they're very similar but different morphologically. So then you have to create a... a phylogeny that's kind of your best way to to do that it what you've got to take into account with turtles how they move um in many freshwater turtles the genes follow the water wherever the river goes that's where the genes go true um, yeah. there is no way for a turtle to get from river a to river b then there is no gene flow and most turtles freshwater turtles get out of water for three reasons. They are basking, laying eggs, or dying. That's the only three reasons they get out of the water. They're not getting out to, to walk 500 kilometers to the next river over land. They will not do it. And, um, and they can't. And I mean, in a country like Australia, um, Australia is an extraordinarily dry country. And it has a fair few rivers, but um, the distance between those rivers is up to, you know, 50 to 100 kilometers up the east coast, for example, between each river. And in between the rivers is virtual desert in a lot of parts to a turtle. I mean, it's dry grassland, dry eucalyptus forests, things like that. It's, 
it's not it's not sand desert like out in the middle of Australia, but it's um, way too dry for turtles to walk over, and um, so there's no connect there's no exchange of genetics between those rivers. Um, the only time the Elsea exchange is whenever we're in an ice age. Because during an ice age in the southern hemisphere, we don't get covered in ice like you guys in the northern hemisphere do. It gets, gets very dry. And sea levels drop and the rivers connect. Because of the continental shelf, um, for example, the Mary, Fitzroy and Burnett rivers where Elsa Albagula um, occur are all connected at the continental shelf. So when water level drops, they're one river. And that's why you get them in all three rivers. Um, and so if you've got uplift of mountains or anything like that, all of it comes into bearing on how these turtles um, distribute. And um, that's very important in South America, is uplift of the Guyana Shield, uplift of the Brazilian Shield, splitting of the Orinoco into the Amazon. The Amazon didn't exist originally. It's a fairly new river. It only um, came into existence with the uplift of the um, Guyana Shield 60 million years ago. Before that, there was just one. Yeah. Yeah, Guyana Shield is very interesting. That that whole like biogeog that whole physiographic region, it, it's an, a fascinating place with a lot of endemic species. I I, I seem to recall. Uh, yes. they, the New Guinean turtles are pretty interesting. I and that that's something that you've dealt with a bit with the Honora Kellys. Uh, do you think that there's any sort of cryptic diversity there that that that's been overlooked, or what do you think that the the current state of the 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 taxonomy there is with with your telids it's fairly good um with the keelids i i mean i think caratochelys is not one species okay um, but um i think i it's remember true. you saying that um i think um the recent paper that described um uh, which was it that media use uh, when he described that southwestern new species of um, Elsaia. I think he put that in the wrong subgenus because um, I've got a skeleton of that and it looks more like a true Elsaia than, than a Hanwera Kelly's. But um, it's, it's a species, I have no problem with that, but it, I just think he's got it in the wrong subgenus. Um, the Amadura is a problem. Um, and I mean, people are putting up um, pictures all the time online. I, I identify turtles all the time online. Um, so I can ID about 270 species of turtle by sight. And um, um, that's what five years at CRI get, teaches you when you ID right. 16. I imagine. You learn how to ID yeah. turtles. Um, and. Um, so I, I tend to ID lots and lots of turtles every week. Um, and I also do it for um, enforcement when they get custom seizures and stuff like that. I ID all the turtles so that they can do prosecutions. And um, yeah, it, the Emmajura is an issue. Um, people put pictures up of these things called Emmajura ganelle and um, um, Emmajura subdebosa. And I'm not entirely convinced there's, there's two species there yet, but um, we'll see. 
The Coretta Kellys, and then we can start to wrap things up and do our little trivia. Do we like yeah, let's about to bring that up. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Go ahead with What's, that. What uh, like because I, I just that's one thing that stuck with me that I for the last like three years I thought of that when I first came to CRI and uh, I mean you were showing me around and everything and I I don't even know through conversation brought that up you were like oh yeah they're they're most likely a there's cryptic diversity there with the Coretta Kellys. Is there any significant like? morphological differences between them or is it mostly more on the molecular side like all over the board it's a little bit of both um brett schaefer did do some um molecular work on them and um but he wasn't 100 percent sure of the locality data behind it so he um he was a bit unconvinced of what to do with it, and so he hasn't done anything with it that I'm aware of. But he found 20% difference between um, Northern Territory and New Guinea. Um, to put that into context, um, the difference between Rodenai and um, Nova Guinea was 7%. So that's nearly three times more different than yes. those two. Um, when I looked at morphology um, in the, oh, around 1998, I think I was doing it, I actually wrote a paper describing the entire skeletal um, morphology of Kellys, And um, I haven't published it, I never published it. And Gene Gaffney looked at it, he thought it was good and I should have published it. But um, what I found was that the Northern Territory form um, well, the one in the one in the Daly River specifically was different to the one in the Alligator River and, and New Guinea. So Australia actually has both species, I think. But um, and then you've got one in um, New Guinea and the Alligator River in Australia. The difference is um, first up, the Daly River form does not have salt glands behind the eyes. So there's a pocket in the um, bony um, orbit where there is a salt gland in Kellys in New Guinea. And um, this is why the New Guinea Karatakellys can go all the way down to the um, brackish areas to nest because they can actually handle being in, in salt water. The daily form only sits in the freshwater sections of the rivers. It has no salt glands and no capacity to handle salt water. Um, when you look into the nose of a pig nose turtle, if you hold one up straight and just look straight into the nose, the form in um, um, Australia in the Daly River, it looks like a keyhole shape if you just look straight into the nose. Whereas the one from um, uh, Papua New Guinea looks more like a figure eight on its side. So it's the infinity shape. Um, just looking down the nose. And when I look at the bones, there is actually differences in the um, osteology within the nasal structure of both species. And um, the Australian form has the white blotches all down the side um, when they're young. Um, the New Guinea form, that disappears much quicker. Uh, the front shape of the um, carapace is different in both taxa as well. So yeah, I, th I think they're different species. And I mean, Caratochelys is actually an enormous family. Um, Caratochelidae, it has 20 described species in four genera. Um, just Caratochelys and Sculptor is the only living one. Right, that, 
I guess that's maybe a good last, but the, the fossil diversity of chelids, what are there whole separate kind of clades of, of, of extinct chelids that branch off from the two sort of South American Australasian divergence, or are there certain fossil species that are nestled within the, the, the crown clade, I guess? How, how, how does that look? It's a bit of both. Um, in um, South America, there are some stem chelids, um, which is why I feel they evolved there. Um, there's quite a number of taxa, um, around 30 taxa, I think, from memory, um, in South America that are um, fossil only from the stem. And then, I mean, even matter matter, you've got Kellis um, columbianus, Kellis um, lewisii, both described species, and then you've got Fimbriata and Orinocoensis are um, living. Um, there's um, Phrynops paranaensis, which is a um, described fossil um, Phrynops. Um, and um, this, I recently found, uh, when I was looking through Musa here in Manaus, um, fossils of um, mesoclemmies in amongst the collection, um, along with their other stuff. They've got um, Phrynops and um, uh, Matamatas as well, but also found mesoclemmies in amongst it. So there's quite a lot. Australia's similar, um, except most of it's in the crown. Um, but some of it's very old. Um, there's uh, some specimens I mention in some of my papers the reason I want my Achilles to actually be further split, Flaviemis, I think, should be actually recognized, is that there is a fossil between Flaviemis herbicide and the rest of my Achilles that is 106 million years old. So the difference between herbicide and my Achilles is greater than the entire diversity of modern birds and mammals in age. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Turtles yeah, are old, and this is what people have to get into the head. They've survived two mass extinctions, not just the, the Cretaceous one. They also survived the Triassic one. And we humans are closer to the extinction of dinosaurs in a timeline than dinosaurs are to the of rise of turtles. That's how right. old they are. They're a quarter of That's a billion years old, not million, billion. That's a really good way to put it. I've never heard someone put it like that. I think that that's a, that's a good bit to chew on as we kind of wrap up here. We've got a few listener questions, so maybe we could do kind of a rapid-fire answer, and then we can go into that trivia. Uh, so the first one was, are bright orange Phrynops tuberosus from Guyana real? I think the Phrynops in Guyana are a new species. I don't think the tuberosus, um, um, in my view, tuberosus only occurs north of the um, Orinoco River and only in Venezuela. I think anything on the Guyana shield is actually a new species, but that's not tested, so I don't know. It would seem to make sense given that whole, that region. We've talked about that a little. Uh, and then the, the second one was the validity of Mesoclemmy's wormathi, which that recently proposed. Yeah, that's a complicated one. I'm not a huge fan of them doing it yet. It may have eventually been something that should have been done, but I don't think they had all the evidence to do it yet. But yes, Wormathai is the Western form of what people used to call Haniceps, and now Haniceps is you know, Eastern form. But yeah, that's valid. It's what's in the current checklist. Okay. And then uh, the third one we've got, what to do with all of the old names of 
types of kelids that are float. We kind of addressed this, but maybe we can put a spin on this and say, I know that, Scott, you've done a lot of traveling to go and see type specimens. What has that been like? Like, it, it, that's got to be a cool experience. Um, yeah, my, it, my first um, trip in 1997 was a $50,000 trip. Um, that was um, in 1997. So that's, yeah. Um, yeah. And I did two round the world, I bought two round the world tickets um, to do it. And um, so I did two laps of the entire planet with 10 stopovers off each of those round the world tickets. And that got me to most of the types and I'm still doing it. I actually am going to see the holotype of um, Enemies Hufibis in, in about three weeks in Munich. Wow, that's got to be, that's a cool thing to go and see all these different museums and the collections they have. That's hopefully something we'll all get to do at some point when we kind of get through college here. Um, all right, so we've got more questions, but we'll address these later on because we've got some more fun kind of conversations planned for tomorrow and Sunday. Uh, but we could just do some trivia now, I guess. We can kick that off. In the interest of time, because we were a little delayed, uh, normally we do kind of a volley here Well, we can ask you questions, you ask us questions, but if you just want to hit us with a few questions, we can finish this up. Oh, I sent them to you earlier. Hopefully I can remember them because I'm on my phone, so it's hard to look at my phone. Right, right. It's flipping out. <laughs> um, all right, I think I asked you um, – Oh, what was it? One of them was um, the importance of macrocephaly. Why is it ecologically important in turtles? What What is the benefit to the turtle to develop macrocephaly? Jack is a big enthusiast <laughs> of this, so maybe he wants to answer this. Yeah. Uh, well, it enables they are able to specialize in feeding on extremely tough-shelled uh, organisms, most of the time mollusks, but crustaceans and things as well. And that the food source that is lucrative in terms of nutrients and uh, ear volume that they can get through that. And they're exploiting a resource that most other, I mean, other turtles and just other organisms in the same environment can't exploit. Like the amount of, even proportionally to them, the amount of strength that they, that is required to consistently break through those uh, mosques is not considered, might not even be, it's not possible for most other creatures to even do. Humans can't do it without a rock or a knife. Um, <laughs> it's, um, I got you're right. And to give you an idea on that, or just how much power um, they actually can develop. Um, Emma Durham um, Victoriae, when they're fully grown female with massive macrocephaly, can actually grab the freshwater mussel from the Daly River, which grows to around 15 centimeters across that mussel. It's a giant mussel and they can open those and what they do is they actually bite the shell only on the hinge where the muscle is that actually holds crack the shell closed. They crack through that and the shell just opens up and then they have a 15 centimeter muscle to eat. Quite a feat. Even these little, uh, this little, this is just a Sternotherus, a uh, loggerhead musk turtle and you can see the alveolar yeah. surfaces are so they're so broadened and uh, not even that just, but the, this is really difficult to see up close, but the keratin is extremely thick and it provides a, but there's also a lot of dexterity in it too. It's not blunt power. Like there is, they're extremely precise with applying that, that strength. 
Yes, they are. They apply it to exactly the right place for that muscle to basically fail. All right, that's that's a good first one. You got a few more for us? Um, what was my other one? I asked for. I see. I I've got them up here. I can the uh, yeah the second the other the first two, one. I, I guess I can read your questions. How old is the family Kelliday based on the fossil record? So I, I, uh, I I'm thinking it's like something like 110 to 100 million years old was the oldest I seem to recall. So middle Cretaceous, but the split based on the dated phylogenies. Well, you want me to answer? The oldest oh, fossil. The oldest fossil is 145 million years old. Okay. All right. Okay, that's interesting because I, I seem to recall the split for a lot of the phylogenies was about there for the, the family Kelliday. So yeah, I didn't um, realize This is one of the issues I have with a lot of the molecular phylogenies. They, they date them um, using their algorithms. And um, I see them and they, um, they say, oh, Kelliday in Australia are 50 million years old. And I say, but I've got a 106 million year old fossil sitting in my hand. Add that right. up. Um, yeah, that so doesn't really work. It doesn't add up. And a lot of the molecular dates with turtles, I think, are out by nearly double because of the way turtles evolve is about tenfold slower than other organisms. Right. That That's good. The, 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 yeah, and some of the methodology, I, the tip dating that the Holly paper did, I was looking a little into it. It seems like it's sort of a new, it's a newer methodology. There's a lot of, the, the, the time intervals, the deviation was like 30 to 40 million years. So it, it, it that's a pretty yeah. big interval, but uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that seems like that maybe we need to narrow that down a bit more. And then, yeah, incorporating, they did incorporate fossil material. He, in he their, did because his supervisor was Juliana Sterley, who is a, um, Argentinian um, paleontologist, so he was always going to be using a lot of fossil material. That's good. That's good. And th but yeah, th then doing that that total evidence matrix with the tip dating it seems like it's kind of a challenging thing. When it, how do you actually incorporate that? And that it is, that it is more it, it, that's the reason most people avoid the the fossil calibration too, right? Is it it adds this layer of complexity that a lot of people don't want to deal with? Is that right? It's not so much that it adds a layer of complexity. It adds a layer of um, ambiguity, of, um, ambiguity, and right. so it reduces your um, your p-value effectively. You know how how probable yeah. it is that you actually are somewhere in the ballpark of what it is you're trying to say. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. Okay, maybe one more question. That this one was the the uh, the benefit of embryonic diapause. That was your last one that you sent to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if someone wants to. I, 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 I could take a stab at this. At Ken or Jack, you want to go? Well, I, so typically it's used to offset the period of time where it's not optimal to hatch. So typically at the, on, the onset of, of the productive season is going to be when hatchling turtles want to enter the water because it's going to be most productive, and that gives them the best fitness advantage for going through the juvenile stage. Pretty much. Basically, um, one of the species where I looked at it in, um, 
when I was a student, I was, as you know, I was a um, student of Arthur George's, and he did a lot of work on um, um, temperature pen and sex determination. And so I was running his incubators as a job, so to speak. So that was my work when I was, you know, um, lab tech to be a student. So I had money. And um, anyway, one of the things we found was that um, with, say, um, Caledonia expansa, which has embryonic diapause, they would lay the eggs before winter and get some development done, shut down during winter, and then start again as soon as winter things started to warm up again, so that when during spring they would hatch earlier because they'd already got some development. So it gives them a head start effectively um, in the in the summer period, so in the productive period, as you say, it, it's a head starting, basically a form of head starting for the turtle. Right. That's a that's an interesting interesting thing that they do. One of many very interesting colonial feats that uh, there's still a lot to learn. Yes. All right. Well, I think we can finish up this episode, but we've got a few more discussions coming up to, uh, tomorrow and Sunday. So uh, for listeners, be on the lookout for that. Uh, but for now, thank you, uh, Scott, for coming on and talking to us today. And I think I've certainly learned a lot in, in the biomechanics. I didn't even expect a lot of that to be talking about that, but that's going to be really, really interesting. A lot of different, the feeding mechanisms and such, and just the, the classification mechanisms. I, I think it's been fascinating. So thanks for coming on. Not a problem. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. It was a great time. All right. I'm going to end the recording now. Thanks for coming.